started last year with a small update and thought that went really well. So we decided to have a big event this year. And then for those of you who've been around this week, we've combined forces with the um, State Society Governors Melanesia Program. We have put on more or less a whole week of uh, conferences. Um, but uh, our two days uh, start now and uh, I won't uh, take more of your time uh, except um, to say, uh, as Tom did, you know, we want to thank the journal, uh, Asia Pacific Policy Studies, as well as AusAid, who support the journal, for supporting us, and uh, the Asian Development Bank, uh, through their Public Expenditure Management TA. So unfortunately, the ADB doesn't have a banner. Otherwise, they'd also be up here. But thanks a lot to uh, Christopher and your colleagues for all the work you've done, not just uh, providing funding, but also in terms of uh, speakers and ideas um, to put this together. Thanks, everyone, who's come a long way. Um, to be here. Um, we'll benefit a lot from your contribution and insight. Uh, apart from that, the only thing I want to say is that you know, for these updates to work, the timing has to, um, timing uh, constraints have to be adhered to. So we try, I guess, to put a lot of speakers uh, from a lot of countries so we can get a lot of points of view, a lot of discussion. And uh, the only way we can do that is that everyone's got to keep to their time limit. So, you know, I do apologize if. Um, we're a bit rude in enforcing those time limits, but we will be using signs uh, to give you warnings when your time is um, you know, almost up and then when it's uh, totally up. So please do stop when it is totally up. And um, of course, uh, we want to leave time for questions. That's the whole point of uh, keeping speakers uh, to their time limits so that we have enough time for questions. So please do come forward um, with your questions and comments and get as much participation as possible. Uh, in terms of the structure of the two days, today uh, we're looking at uh, across the Pacific region, uh, the entire region, with, uh, including uh, Timor-Leste in our coverage. And then uh, tomorrow uh, we're going to focus specifically on PNG as the, the biggest uh, country by far in the region. We thought we'd we'll give this a special day. Uh, this morning is the sort of classic update. Uh, we're going to have an overview, first of all. Uh, from uh, Christopher Edmonds of the ADB, and then we're going to do country updates, and in the afternoon we go to some specific themes. Uh, first of all, regional issues, then gender, and then um, public and private sector management. Um, and then I'll talk about PNG tomorrow. Uh, but it's a, I think we have the ideal way to start uh, the update uh, with our first presentation uh, by Christopher Edmonds of the ADB. Um, and we've done this deliberately. Um, was we thought, you know, what we need, such a complex region, such a diverse region, we need someone at the start to give us that overview. Uh, then we can go into, you know, country-specific uh, issues, dissenting views, uh, but we thought, you know, we need to start off with the overview. And ADB does all a great service by bringing out their Pacific uh, Economic Monitor, I think, three times a year. And Christopher Edmonds is the editor uh, of that monitor and uh, writes the overview. And so uh, uh, we're delighted that he can uh, not only be with us here today, but um, give us, uh, you know, hot off the press, um, the, uh, an overview of the July 2013 Pacific Economic Monitor take uh, on the Pacific. Uh, so Christopher, we're delighted to have you here, and uh, I think you, your time allocation is uh, 20 minutes, and uh, then we'll have some questions and answers. Thank you.
Good morning, everyone, uh, and uh, thanks very much for uh, giving me this opportunity to uh, officially launch the latest issue of the Pacific Economic Monitor here today. Um, as, as Stephen uh, just said, uh, the Pacific Economic Monitor uh, is, is published three times a year, um, with uh, the first issue basically providing the first issue each year coming out in March, providing sort of annual forecasts. Uh, the second issue in July, which focuses sort of on mid-year updates, and the final issue in December, which focuses usually on budget outcomes. But more generally, it's, it provides a, a, an update on the economic developments in the 14 Pacific countries that comprise the ADB's Pacific region. Um, each issue also <coughs> tries to select a, a particular policy theme uh, of relevance to the Pacific and uh, solicits uh, contributions, uh, short briefs on that issue. Um, uh, and in regards to that, uh, we actively solicit contributions from other organizations. So ADB really hopes that this um, becomes sort of a regional platform. And, and we, many people, a few of the, the, the attendees today actually have, have contributed very excellent briefs in recent uh, issues. So very happy to uh, to uh, have a chance here to, to uh, talk to you. Look forward to the next two days. Um, I should also mention, of course, that the collaboration of the economists in each of the countries is also very important to the development of, of the updates. So, so we're working very closely with that. And that, that relationship is also very important in terms of uh, ensuring the, the accuracy of what, what is in the monitor. So I hope you've all had a chance. We, we brought many copies of the monitor here today. Um, the monitor is also always <coughs> available online for, for um, without charge. You can, if you just search uh, Pacific Economic Monitor ADB, you'll, you'll go to the page where you can always get both the most recent and, and all past issues. The other thing that might be of interest to the more research-minded among you is the, the database is also, so the, the, the Excel file of all the indicators that we use to uh, drive our forecasts are, are always uploaded along with the, the issue uh, uh, of the monitor. So uh, without further ado, um, I'll uh, go into the presentation I planned. I, I emphasize the word plan because we'll see how it goes. I've actually, as Stephen said, it was a mad rush to sort of get this issue put together in time. Then I show up in, in a very cold Canberra for me. I've, I've become a tropical creature after more than a decade in Manila, and now I've got a flu. So we'll see what comes out, but I'll do my best. Um, obviously, I can't pretend to talk about all the countries. Uh, I'll just try to give you a flavor of what we see as some of the leading international developments that are of most importance to the Pacific region, and then quickly talk about sort of some of the, 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 the developments in particular countries. And, in gen and to try to give you a flavor for what, what drives the, the forecasts and revisions of forecasts that ADB comes up with three times a year. Okay, so I'll start with international and regional developments. Uh, we will speak about um, these link. It, it, it's really has to do with uh, the, the key trends that we look for are what's happening with Pacific trade, what's happening with tourism, what's happening with remittances, and, and another one where, where there's not a lot of hard data is what's what's happening in terms of public expenditures in the countries. Because 
if you look at the, if you group the Pacific countries into different groups, you'll see the different, these factors are uh, varying importance across different countries. So, it, and as you all know, anyone who's done research in the Pacific, uh, both the timeliness and coverage of, of high frequency economic indicators is, is problematic. So it's a, it's, it makes, inevitably makes the <coughs> forecasting a little more qualitative than you know what you could do if you were working on China or the EU zone or, or things like that. So we try to bring that together. Um, okay, so I'll just begin with, uh, uh, I'll go very quickly through this. So the, obviously the, the, global, the global economic recovery from the global financial and economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 continues. Um, actually, so, so 2013 is actually looking like uh, a fairly uh, tough year globally um, with, with uh, relative to 2012. And, uh, but fortunately, we, we are seeing, uh, we are predicting some upturn in growth in 2014. And this really isn't our work. We're, we're just borrowing from uh, the IMF's World Economic Outlook for this, this table. But we see, um, in retrospect, we, we didn't know that 2012 was going to be a banner year for the Pacific, but you can see from the chart that actually it, it did have a very high growth rate regionally. Um, and with any, any regional average growth rate in the Pacific is really driven by uh, a few countries in particular, uh, because we, we weight the regional average by uh, gross national income of the countries. So um, PNG has a dominant weight in that regional average followed by Timor, Fiji, um, Solomon Islands, and so on. So, so it's really, it was the, the very, very high growth in P&G in 2012, which is kind of driving that, that high regional growth figure. Um, but we saw that 2013 is a big drop off from 2012, but and as I said previously, we're, we're expecting some upturn in 2014. Obviously, the prices of commodities are of, of considerable importance to the region. Um, again, because the larger economies tend to be natural resource exporting economies. So, um, and so far in 2013, we actually see most of the major export commodities prices falling, which obviously uh, creates certain issues for um, uh, some of the, these economies, uh, particularly raising fiscal constraints. Uh, because it affects tax revenues and so on. Okay. So you can see precipitous, you know, coconut oil the price has really fallen uh, in the last year, continuing a trend that dates from early 2011. Um, uh, food prices are, are also down. Um, and uh, even, even timber, which is a very important export for Solomon Islands, the prices are down. Um, the other one is tourism markets. Obviously, a few of the economies are essentially tourism-focused economies. So we're always tracking what's happening with uh, tourism departures to Pacific destinations. And we see so far 2013, uh, year on year for the first quarter, is down from 2012, uh, particularly with the Australian departures. And uh, while New Zealand departures to the Pacific are holding steady. We also track other, other major countries that, that, that have tourists in the Pacific. So in the North Pacific, you'll find Japanese, uh, East Asian, and US tourism is much more important. And we track that as well. But uh, given time constraints, I won't go through all that data. Okay. And 
we're also tracking what, what Pacific trade is, again, with focusing on Australia and New Zealand because the data tends to be very good and, and available quite readily and quickly. Um, and we see, um, in the case of Australia, again, a fall off in, in the total value of trade with the Pacific, um, both on the imports and the export side, with a larger decrease on the export side. So Pacific exports to Australia are so far falling vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis last year. Mm -hmm. Okay, and obviously the other, uh, another important linkage is overseas employment and remittances in the Pacific, which is one of the, the data points that's most difficult to find high frequency data. But in general, you know, remittances have really suffered in most of the economies uh, since, the, <coughs> since 2009. Uh, Tonga in particular comes to mind where, where we've seen a fall off in remittances to Tonga from, to Tonga from, from Tongans overseas. Um, and that's really dragging growth in the country. Uh, and so that's it. And it, obviously that relates to the employment, uh, the unemployment situation in, in, the, in the destination countries as well. Okay, so now I'm gonna turn to sort of growth and inflation trends in the Pacific. So the Pacific Economic Monitor tends to focus on a very short term. It's really looking at 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, I thought it would, just for interest, it would be interesting to, to go back to 2009. So any of the historical figures, even 2012, that, that's, those are actuals, not the forecast, whereas 2013 and 2014 are the forecasts. And, and for purposes of exposition, I'm dividing the countries into four groups. So starting with, with the, the, large, the larger um, resource exporting economies. So you'll see uh, P&G growth, is forecast to be significantly down um, in 2013. And uh, uh, fortunately, we'll, we'll have experts who can really delve into that in greater detail. And, uh, but, but you know, it's nearly half the rate of 2012 growth, which uh, is driven by basically the wrapping up of work on the LNG pipeline. Meanwhile, the actual LNG exports aren't expected to start until next year. So, so the, the economy has a, has a somewhat difficult transition period to go through. The government is wisely attempting to use fiscal stimulus to sort of bridge that gap and reduce the, the transitional challenges of, of, of a significant downturn in growth, which is promising. But like, as in many Pacific countries, uh, the government's ability to execute ambitious plans can be, can be a challenge. Um, and more worryingly, perhaps, um, is that um, because of the commodity price falls and the debt of lower growth, we actually think that government revenues uh, may be challenged. So that might actually uh, raise challenges in terms of sustaining the fiscal stimulus that the PNG government is planning. Solomon Islands, uh, just very quickly, is also facing a very, very uh, significant downturn uh, over the past few years. And that's related to basically their, the, the long predicted demise of the, the forests in Solomon Islands seems to finally actually be binding. So we do see timber exports and timber production falling. And uh, just this year, uh, a new trend that's led us to downgrade, mod, uh, downgrade our growth forecast for the Solomon Islands is that gold production also seems to be down. Okay. And then uh, Timor-Leste is, is obviously one of the faster growing economies of the region, owing to its uh, oil exports, essentially. And uh, we see that basically the, the economy is predicted to 
to do quite well, uh, to continue its rough average of about 10% growth per year, uh, which it's sustained over the past few years. Uh, we are suggesting a very modest downgrade in, in the growth forecast for this year on account of a uh, under-expenditure of planned capital expenditures by the government. So in the first quarter, expenditures were extremely low relative to what uh, you would predict if, if expenditures were going to be equally distributed across the year. Um, and I think uh, there's actually, I think, upside to that in that I think uh, policymakers in Timor-Leste are looking at recent, recent expenditures and, and expressing certain concern about the, the efficiency of those public expenditures, in which case um, maybe a little delay is a, is a prudent and good thing to do. Again, uh, because, I mean, although Timor-Leste, you know, is sitting on tremendous resources, I mean, I'm not sure what other countries are in such an enviable fiscal position with the petroleum fund, and it's, you know, very high value per capita for the citizenry, but actually in, in relation to its needs, again, that's not really much wealth, and it can dissipate pretty quickly. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, my, my friend and colleague, uh, Helder Lopes, talking more about that uh, later today. So those were the resource exporters. I've also grouped the sort of tourism-oriented economies. So the two, you can see that the resource exporters are the ones that have attained growth, you know, upwards of five, even 10% per year in GDP growth. Um, the next strata of growth would be the tourism-oriented economies, where again, you, you see more volatility, and those are due to various idiosyncratic events. So you do see where you have uh, this volatility in Palau and Cook Islands related to natural disasters or, or economic disasters like the global financial and economic <coughs> crisis. Um, basically, tourism is doing okay this year, but definitely not, not the banner year of 2012 for uh, Palau and Cook Islands. Um, Vanuatu, actually, we seem to be seeing an upturn in tourism, and we, we attribute, it, it, looking at it historically, you often see um, displacement between uh, Fiji tourism and Vanuatu tourism. They're, they're substitute destinations. So um, uh, Vanuatu seems to be benefiting from uh, some of the, 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 the cyclone, uh, the, I think the, the cyclone in, in Fiji uh, late last year. But again, the, the, the rates of growth, you can see range between, you know, a low of a, less than 2% and a high of, of about 6%. So they generally growing at a lower level of equilibrium. And what's interesting to think about is sort of the, the issues that the, 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 these economies, as I group them, sort of share common policy issues. So the resource exporters, it's a lot of concern about what the so-called resource curse and how do you take natural resource wealth that's very focused and how do you make it turn that into inclusive growth? And then there's also what, what, what economists refer to as the Dutch disease phenomena that a lot of these economies are facing. In the case of the tourism-oriented economies, it's obviously establishing and maintaining your, your destination, you know, uh, tourism promotion, uh, and making it affordable and efficient to, for visitors to come to your country as well as worrying about capacity constraints. So having adequate public infrastructure that tourism uh, can, can thrive in the country and you, the need to maintain the natural resource base because that's really the, the base of the tourism. Um, if, if the beaches become polluted or the hotels become degraded, then, then you have uh, significant problems in your tourism sector. So there is talk, especially in Palau and, and to a slightly lesser extent of capacity constraints to 
you know, uh, how many more tourists can Palau handle at peak periods, and, and what public infrastructure is needed to, to sort of enable that ratcheting up in an, in, in an environmentally sustainable way. Okay. Then this is kind of a, a, a mixed group. I would call them the, sort of the relatively diversified South Pacific economies. Uh, and uh, there we have, again, the very big economy of Fiji, um, which has been, you know, has been growing at a little, around, hovering around 2% growth over the last few years. Um, and to me, uh, again, Fiji has a sizable agricultural sector. It has a sizable tourism sector. It's really sort of the, the, the hidden, the sleeping giant of the Pacific, I would say. And obviously sort of the wild card in, in regional growth. So um, if, if the elections go ahead and you know, everything goes smoothly, I really see, I could see Fiji growth accelerating substantially. We're not revising our forecast yet, but uh, that could, uh, Fiji has, a, I think there's a lot of upside risk to uh, the growth rate in Fiji. And that could actually, would have uh, significant spillover effects for the rest of the region. Uh, Samoa and Tonga are, 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 are somewhat struggling, well, Tonga in particular is a economy that we see really struggling in, in recent years. And a number of factors for that, again, obviously, public infrastructure coming up against debt constraints, as well as, um, you know, the often mentioned uh, difficult uh, uh, business environment. So very, very lackluster uh, private sector investment and, and, and business creation in Tonga. And Samoa has just, you know, has, has had perhaps the least luck of any Pacific country in terms of one disaster after another. And so you can see on the graph in the 2009, the huge fall in GDP traced to the tsunami again. And then, and then they had the cyclone more recently. So um, Samoa is really struggling to, to adjust to the, these external shocks. Okay. And then we have uh, the, the smallest Pacific economies. Um, uh, of Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, and Tuvalu. And essentially, these economies tend, have tended to grow at very low rates, uh, with the exception of Nauru, which has been boom and bust um, for, for many years. Obviously, a, a, a lamentable case of uh, economic uh, planning uh, back when, when Nauru was sitting on so much uh, phosphate wealth, and then we saw it all just dissipate with no lasting effect uh, very quickly. Um, but uh, again, the, the, the principal drivers of growth in these economies are public expenditures and uh, to some extent uh, overseas development assistance with, with fisheries being another one. Um, I'm a little reluctant to put Micronesia there because I think it has a lot more land resources than the other ones, so perhaps more development potential. But I think uh, my read, having spent some time in, in, in Micronesia is that uh, I think there's a fair, I think that the, the policymakers there are wisely reluctant to just to embrace growth in any form. So they're, they're very cautious about sort of the cultural and, and uh, the cost of growth, which I think is a very interesting thing for economists to think about. Um, because I think if Micronesia, given its placement, um, if it wanted to, I think it could probably grow a lot faster, but I think wisely they're, they're sort of taking an approach of, well, we don't want to be another Hawaii. Um, even though that's probably a ways off, but the opportunity is there. And here's just a, here, here at that, that point I made about the <coughs> average growth rate. So I'm just, this just shows sort of among these four, econ the, these four groups of economies, you see what the average growth rates have been 
over the past uh, several years. And inflation trends in the Pacific um, very quickly. I think I'm almost out of time. Uh, I've got about one minute. Uh, so we see that uh, inflation is most acute in, in the resource exporting economies. Timor last has particular inflation problems where there seems to be an infl inflation expectation spiral in the country and persisting supply chain bottlenecks that are really uh, making it hard to control price inflation. I mean, it's a little dispiriting to see that inflation is actually, um, you know, continues to rise in Timor because because of its use of the U.S. dollar, you'd actually expect, uh, and the dollar's appreciation, you that should be deflationary, but it, it's not happening. So I, 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 again, the policymakers in Timor are very aware of the problem and are, are working to to address the supply chain bottlenecks. Uh, and then PNG uh, with with the slowdown in growth, we're seeing a a reduction in. Inflation, but there has been some criticism of uh, public expenditure again fueling inflation, both in Timor and in PNG. Uh, Solomon Islands again, inflation slowing now again now that growth is slowing, uh, and then we, we have other economies uh, there. Um, so I just wanted to touch briefly on the, the theme, the theme, uh, the policy theme for this uh, issue of the the, FAM, the of the Pacific Economic Monitor. Uh, Prospects and progress in regional and economic re, Pacific regional economic cooperation and integration. So we have four paper. I encourage four excellent papers. I encourage you very much to take a look at them. And also, an effort was made to at least ad to address sort of what what's happening in, in in terms of regional economic integration and cooperation in each of the countries in the write up. So that's also I think of interest. So uh, I don't want to start a bad precedent by going over time. So I'll stop right here. Thank you. Oh great, thanks very much Christopher. We encourage people in the back, please come and sit down. There are seats available in the front and few scattered throughout. Um, yeah, that was a great overview by the way, and I especially like that grouping, which is a new grouping and you know, something you always talk about Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, is a different grouping to think about. So this is very stimulating. Uh, We'll take up these themes through the day, but uh, we do. We have set aside a few uh, minutes for questions, discussion to get us going. So, uh, who'd like to uh, get the floor on? You can just um, identify yourself. And uh, uh, I don't know if we're not, we're not going to do microphones. I think. We are going to do microphones. Okay. So, uh, questions. Comments. Silence. I can. That's a problem when you're so yeah. broad, brother. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, thanks for letting us very comprehensive. I'm seeing you that there's a lot of outside risks. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit um, why I think that the country has the potential to grow faster? Part, I mean, part being a more diversified economy. What else do you think is in favor? Um, so, I mean, the tourism is a sector which is, is very strong right now. Um, but my understanding is that there's a lot of it, uh, overseas investors looking at doing tourism development, but they're still sort of sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see you know, what will happen with the political situation in the country. But if, if the ADB's regional director in Suva is to believe things really are progressing on that, in that regard, and there seem to be, you know, there are clearer signs that the elections will go ahead in one form or another. And that, uh, so I think, it, you know, just, 
you know, following the, the idea that there are, uh, whenever there's economies that have been somewhat isolated or shut out, and then there's a thaw, there tends to be somewhat of a boost of growth as investors rush back into the economy. So it's sort of like what happened in Vietnam, what happened in Cambodia, and other economies. So I think that's driving it. And then if you look at the other individual sectors, again, the, the, the government is planning a very ambitious infrastructure development plan. Um, obviously, again, there seems to be somewhat of a backlog of need in that area, and that could obviously stimulate growth. Um, agriculture tends to be a very a more problematic area for the country, but again, um, perhaps with increased international cooperation following uh, what will hopefully be a successful election, you know, you could see some change. I, you know, I think the natural endowments in that regard are quite strong. It's just working through some very intractable policy issues that are really uh, creating the problem in terms of the agricultural sector growth. So, I mean, there's a few sectors where you see a lot of upside potential, but it's all really driven by, by the, the political political developments and the rapprochement of the international community with the country. Any, what would you take? I mean, you, you're more of a Fiji expert than I am, I'm sure. It was seen as one of the great hopes, particularly in Melanesia, and now we're seeing prices going down, um, investor interest going down, production yeah. going down, and a lot more challenges in, in, yeah. uh, in getting these things going. So how are you seeing that and projecting two, three, five years forward? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, it's still by far the strongest growth engine in the Pacific region. Yeah. Um, so again, but those are the economies that are really booming. Um, uh, I'm not an engineer or a geophysicist or anything, so it's hard for me. I'll just rely on what people are saying. I don't think there's any imminent, you know, there, there's no calls of imminent exhaustion of, of many of these resources. So that's really fairly promising. So in, in the medium term to even long term, it looks promising. Like, you know, Timor-Leste has been growing and, you know, basically exploiting one of their uh, offshore oil fields. And there's a whole other one that's waiting uh, exploitation if, if uh, certain issues can be worked out. So um, obviously, there's always some, some some conflict between inevitably there's conflict between the the international uh, corporations that, that that try to exploit these resources and, and national concern about are they getting their just share and you know are we are we charging enough for our natural resources um, and you know, that that's that's a challenge. But I guess you know viewing the figures, I see that as still a, a very promising area. Even though you know if prices are down, it's still a generator of wealth that, that you don't that, that is unrivaled within the region. I hope I answered your question. Yeah. yeah let's not worry about the microphone. Yeah, yeah, it's small room, very good acoustics. So, so just introduce yourself. Cost of remittances in the Pacific. Uh, how much? Oh. What effect does, does the growth in telecommunications in the Pacific Island countries have an effect on remittances? I don't think we have the data to say, but again, definitely the theory and the expectations are that it has a lot of upside potential, um, where if, if we improve connectivity uh, with that, there could be opportunities for uh, outsourcing of uh, you know, call centers and what have you. Uh, and again, living in Manila, Manila's this huge, uh, Center and there's been a real economic boon to, to the Philippines. So uh, 
again, for, for the smallest Pacific states and for Fiji, you know, because of Fiji English speakers, lots of educated workers, that could become a very important thing if, if the telecom goes ahead and, and the systems get in place. Um, again, remittances are, are a particularly important thing in, in, the, in the smaller Pacific states. And there, there's very well-established links, uh, networks of, of overseas work. So in the North Pacific, again, their, their access to the US market um, is actually leading to almost zero population growth in some of the countries. All the, the workers uh, tend to seek better economic opportunities in the US. Uh, and in the South Pacific, again, it's linkages with the Australian and New Zealand economies. Unfortunately, it's just hard to get high frequency, you know, up-to-date data on these things. Um, so we're usually reporting yesterday's news uh, in the monitor on this, but uh, I guess uh, as the global economy grows, hopefully remittances will, will again pick up in, in the region. Okay, time for one last question. Uh, Winston Rodriguez, I'm the advisor to the Independent Consumer and Competition Commission in Papua New Guinea. Yes. Uh, looking at the figures, uh, I noticed that Timor-Leste is doing very well yes. compared to the others. Uh, even allowing for the fact that it's a small economy and therefore any single project would have a disproportionate effect on uh, outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any other factor that distinguishes Timor-Leste from the other Pacific uh, nations we look at, something in the way of the way they operate, uh, anything uh, qualitative that other countries can learn from? Hmm. Well, the, the thing that's most often cited as, as Timor-Leste being a model is, is how they've managed their petroleum wealth with their offshore petroleum fund, which you know does seem to be exemplary. Um, and so, so they are sitting on all this wealth. Um, it, it, does not appear to you know, be, be subject to uh, political, uh, I don't know how to put it politely, but, but the politicians don't seem to have their hands in the till in this case. And that, that's very, um, it was managed excellently through the global economic and financial crisis um, where they had basically very conservatively put all their resources at that time in uh, US Treasury bills. So when all the stock markets around the world crashed, the, the the, the, the value of the petroleum fund did not fall, um, whereas a lot of the other um, provident funds around the region that had invested uh, more broadly did, did suffer significant falls. Um, obviously, it's a very young country with a very ambitious leadership, um, and they seem very committed to, to trying to achieve inclusive growth, but uh, you know, just understanding how difficult it is to diffuse growth that is essentially coming out of a few offshore oil rigs, and how do you diffuse that to the people um, it is a key challenge to the region, but they, they definitely have come up with, with the help of development, uh, with development partners, with, a, with a, what seems to be a very coherent and, and logical uh, strategic development plan. You know, basically understanding that uh, the basic development of basic infrastructure in the, in the economy is sort of a, a backbone to inclusiveness. So if you can improve the rural people's access to uh, to markets in the cities, um, that's a very good thing. Um, so, I guess that's it again. And, and obviously, having gone through, you know, achieved the the political stability where they've had peaceful transitions of power, they've they've handled the withdrawal of the UN uh, mission there successfully with with very minimal effects. So it's it is a model for the economy for for the other region, uh, for the other countries in the region.
Thank you. Right, thank you, Christopher. I know there are others like to ask questions, and I'll give you a first go at the next session, and which Christopher will also take part in. Thanks very much, Christopher, for getting us off to such excellent stuff. And also, a lot of these uh, special topics are going to come up actually through the presentations, uh, so we'll come back to those. Themes. We now go on to our first panel, uh, and we're taking, um, I guess, a traditional divide, although next year we might take your divide. But this year we, we've got uh, putting Melanesian Timor-Leste in our first session, and then the second session is Small Island States. So we started with a very big panel. Uh, we've got five um, people speaking, and I know some of you have um, PowerPoint presentations. How many have PowerPoint? They all have PowerPoint. So I think I'll just invite you to stay in your seats, uh, and just to come up as you speak, so that those who are presenting can also see the PowerPoints, and then at the end you can all come up and we'll have the Q&A. Uh, so I'll just do very brief uh, introductions uh, as we go. We're starting with uh, my good friend and colleague Satish Chan. Satish, uh, I'm sure you all know, uh, but he is now Professor of Finance at the University of New South Wales, and he's going to kick off uh, our first panel session uh, with the topic of growth and inequality in Melanesia. Um, 10 minutes, and I'm supposed to talk about economic growth uh, and inequality in Melanesia. The one problem we don't have in Melanesia is that we don't have too much inequality because we haven't had much growth, so everybody has been growing equally poor. Um, next one. Yep, let's, let's keep going. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay. So um, I'm going to talk about uh, economic growth with rising poverty in Papua New Guinea. Uh, PNG is the largest of the Melanesian countries. Uh, it's about four and a half times the size in terms of population compared to the rest of Melanesia, so it's huge. And in PNG, you have had unprecedented economic growth over the past decade. Chris referred to this. But we have had rising poverty. Uh, you would be familiar with the saying, um, rising tides lift all boats, uh, the saying attributed to JFK. In the case of Papua New Guinea, it seems as though the rising tide of economic growth has actually sunk quite a few boats, particularly those boats which were around the poverty line, the leaky, creaky boats on the poverty line got sunk uh, as a result of rising economic growth. And I'll try and, I'll try and show you why that has happened. So that in itself is an anomaly. Okay. So um, briefly, um, Chris, uh, thanks uh, for giving the figures on uh, rapid growth in GDP. I don't have to go over that. The past decade has seen unprecedented economic growth in Papua New Guinea. The issues with data, but broadly, broadly the trends are there and they tell you a fairly strong story. But with it, we have had rising poverty. So there's a puzzle uh, between one and two, rising economic growth with rising poverty. <coughs> one way to resolve this puzzle is to deny that poverty exists. And uh, you know, some people have done that. Uh, but the only reason why you do poverty analysis, the only reason why I do poverty analysis, is so as to target assistance to the poor. So if you begin by saying there is no poverty, then there isn't a problem. We have failed on step one. Then you can't do much after that. There isn't poverty, so what are you talking about? I'll show you that there is poverty, and I'll try and use 
more precise numbers than those that have been used to date, the new numbers. I'm not saying that my numbers are a substitute to what John Gibson at the World Bank and others have produced. What I'm saying is that this is a substitute. And then I'll tell you where I'm taking this in terms of targeting assistance to the poor. So PNG, um, I'm sure all of you know where it is. Um, I often uh, get told that um, you know, there's some other countries who are closer to Australia than Papua New Guinea. I'm told the distance between two communities, the closest communities between Australia and Papua New Guinea is four kilometers. You could virtually swim the distance. Um, this is uh, Chris's story. We're looking at uh, PNG economy over the past decade in terms of aggregate GDP and per capita GDP. Population growth in Papua New Guinea is pretty high. It's about 2.7% per year. So aggregate GDP has to grow by 2.7% at least to keep per capita GDP constant. So you have to stand still in terms of per capita GDP for aggregate GDP to grow by 2.7% per annum. So if, if per capita GDP is to increase, then aggregate GDP has to increase by more than 2.7%, basic arithmetic. Now in the case of Papua New Guinea, um, last year I'm told uh, GDP growth was about 9%, year before last was 11, and the other figures were shown by Chris, so it has been fairly rapid. But if you're looking at numbers on poverty, these figures are from uh, John Gibson, University of Waikato, who has done a lot of work on this. He shows quite clearly that headcount, uh, poverty in terms of headcount, poverty in terms of poverty gap, or the severity of poverty have all increased. But for those of you who know how these numbers are measured, the figures have a fair bit of measurement error in them. So you have sampling error plus measurement error. The way they're calculated, and for those of you who attended John Gibson's seminar a month ago, uh, will know that, that you have to make a lot of adjustments to the data. Briefly, this is what happens. You have a household income expenditure survey. You work out the consumption per household per adult as the difference between what you purchase plus what you produce plus what you get as gifts less what you sell less what you give away as gifts less any change in stocks so they're basically comprised of six components and each one of them is measured with error so what you get in total is per capita consumption has got a fair bit of error so when you're trying to measure Poverty in terms of per capita consumption, you're looking at a basket of goods and the poverty line is constructed as a basket that is sufficient to buy you 2,200 calories per adult equivalent per day. And then you count how many people don't reach that line. Now given the errors in measurements in trying to work out per, per capita consumption, <laughs> The numbers you get in terms of poverty are pretty rubbery. So John comes up with these numbers and he's the most careful guy I know of who has played with this data. He knows the data back to front. His figures are from the 1996 Household Income Expenditure Survey. Poverty in Papua New Guinea was 37.7%. Using the same methodology on 2009-10 data, his numbers are 39.9%. So a difference of 2.2 percentage points but they're not statistically significant. 
And that's largely because of this issue of measurement. I will show you alternate measures which I think are far more precise. They require much less massaging. Not only that, in terms of targeting poverty, in terms of targeting poverty, I can tell you the address of the poor for the data I have, and I can tell you their date of birth. I can't tell you the names. I don't think you can get any better than that. Um, what I'm going to use is anthropometric. So the anthro data actually measures the height, the weight, the age, and the sex of a child, five years and less. And that's when the height, age, weight of a child is very much a function of nutrient intake. And I'm going to compare this against benchmarks <coughs> created by the World Health Organization for a healthy population. It's a cross-section. It's about 10,000 children who are followed. This is as good a benchmark as you're going to get. The data requires a fair bit of cleaning. We can talk about the cleaning later on. But here's my data. I compared the 1996 HIS. has got 565 children between the ages of 0 and 5. The 0910 HIES has got two and a half thousand children. So, and they look basically normal. There's a bit of cleaning to be done, but they look as good as you would expect. This is looking at, oh, by the way, the other one was looking at height for age, Z scores, statisticians, so looking at how many standard deviations away from the mean you are. This is looking at BMI, body mass index, Z scores uh, in terms of age, normalized for age. Rumba was saying, I can tell you where these guys are. They are the households that have been surveyed, and the red dots are those whose BMI height for age falls below two standard deviations. WHO and the health and nutrition literature define children who are two standard deviations or less in terms of height for age as being stunted. So that's the definition the literature uses. That's not my definition. This is a widely used definition, and there's agreement by WHO and UNICEF on this definition. So the red dot shows you where the poverty, uh, where, where children are uh, who are stunted. I can <coughs> give you the address of these. The university ethics uh, stops me from giving you the exact address, but I can show you that. Just in terms of numbers, I don't think we have time to go over numbers. Uh, but if you're looking at Highlands, so this is divided into four regions. Highlands has got, from a total population of 486 children that I have in my data, 277 are stunted. So 57% of the Highland children in my data are stunted. The Highlands itself accounts for about 25% of stunted children in Papua New Guinea as a whole. So if you go down the list, Highlands looks pretty bad. Islands don't look that bad. Momase has got 45% of its population of children being stunted, and Momase accounts for 33% of that total. <clears throat> Look at the difference between urban and rural Momase. And finally, southern, which includes NCD. There are 303 uh, stunted children of a total of 870, uh, 870 so stunting of 35%, and the southern accounts for 28% of the total. So for PNG as a whole, my poverty numbers are saying that 43% of the children are stunted. I can give you the regional breakdown. The standard errors on these are very, very small because I'm not doing much to the data other than cleaning it, cleaning it and counting. 
Uh, this is showing you the same thing pictorially and comparing 1996 with 2010 using exactly the same methodology. You can see clearly that in each case, except for Mumase, poverty has actually gone up in terms of stunting. Remember I was saying why? Um, this is a puzzle. The two reasons why this is happening, and this is what I'm working on right now. <coughs> One is the standard Dutch disease that Chris talked about. The Kina, and this is a Kina per US dollar, the Kina appreciated pretty rapidly for the past 18 months. So that's a standard Dutch disease. The Kina has actually gone through the roof, but if you're comparing from 2002, the Kina has nearly doubled in value compared to the US dollar. But the largest appreciation has taken place over the past 18 months. But something more. So this is the first whammy. The second one is commodity prices. So if you're looking at tree crops and 40% of PNG households, according to the 0910 data, depend on export tree crops, palm oil, coconut oil, cocoa beans, and coffee. And look at the last 18 months. Commodity prices have sort of gone through the floor. So those two things combined have hurt, particularly the rural poor, heavily. But if you're looking at NCD, the other real exchange rate, the price of non-traded goods vis-a-vis -vis traded goods and non-traded being housing largely, has also gone through the roof. So that has hurt a lot of the poor in NCD within the southern region. So those two combined have hurt, and this explains why we have had economic growth, but with it we have had such a rapid rise in poverty. Um, Steve, I don't know how much I'm, well, one minute, so I'm just there. So the first one is, um, my first conclusion is yes. Uh, have rising tides lifted all boats? The answer is clearly no. But in the land of unexpected, you expect the unexpected. <laughs> so that's the first one. The second one, um, I would suggest that we can use anthropometrics quite, quite cleverly to work out poverty. And then, I don't think you would have the sort of debates you have in PNG right now. The numbers are pretty precise, the definitions are pretty clear, and most importantly, we can target these guys. If we have our aid posts, our health centers, who can get in children, weigh them, that's not very hard, measure them, that's not very hard, plug these numbers into a table, which I can provide, and say, look, you are stunted, we can provide assistance. So I think it can be done pretty easily. I don't think it's rocket science. Why has poverty and GDP risen together? I think I've given you some lessons, but this is a much bigger paper. And what I've given you is basically a flavor of what I'm working on right now. Finally, finally, I think PNG has a very, very strong case, given the sort of money we have for safety nets. I think there is a case for conditional cash transfers. I think the mechanisms are there, there. I don't think it's all that hard. I think it can be done. And if there's one thing we as a community can do is to push towards providing a safety net, I think that would be the best um, we could achieve out of our efforts on poverty reduction. Thanks very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Atis. That was that was really interesting, and new research. Uh, we'll go straight on. Uh, next speaker is Tony Hughes. Uh, again, Tony needs no introduction. He's um, had various senior roles uh, in the Solomon Islands, uh, including as uh, former central bank governor and uh, in the region. Well-known uh, commentator, analyst. Tony, over to you on the Solomon. Uh, 
bit of a bit of a change of uh, tempo because uh, I deeply distrust uh, economic statistics in the Pacific, <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to um, talk instead about uh, the domestic determinants, or some of them, of economic performance. And I think this is, it's quite a good idea to take a moment and look at this, because we hear a lot about um, GDP, and at home I hear a lot about it from the government. We must be doing something right. GDP last year grew by 10.7%. Well, good. As everybody says, a lot of that is related to cutting down the natural forest and exporting it and not getting anything like the return you ought to get for those cubic metres of those species. If you, if you had inherited something from your parents and you sold it all off and consumed the income, but you were doing very nicely thank you while you were doing it, would that be growth in, in a personal sense? No, it wouldn't. And so with, I think these statistics, which we all bandy around <coughs> because there aren't any others, uh, should be treated with great suspicion. So let's uh, just have a look at this. These start off, I, I've got it in sort of three sections. First of all, uh, the, the domestic determinants that are related to resources, access to resources. And when we look at a country, I'm talking particularly of Solomon Islands, to understand the availability of resources and what the country can possibly do with them in real life, you've got to look at the culture, the history, where we are, the orientation of not only the country, but people, how they think about resources, how they think about the outside world, and how they think about themselves. Because that's what drives them, actually. And then we've got to link at the, look at the, the, the orientation, the historical orientation of the country, its connections, what its experiences have been, how it became independent, what has happened to it since independence, in the sense of the change in perceptions of themselves, ourselves, the outside world, and how they see us. These links to the outside world are among the important um, determinants, domestic determinants, us as we see ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the outside world, important determinants of how, we, of how our economy will develop. Secondly, the ownership and control of land and other natural resources, including the fish in the sea, and potentially including minerals under the seabed. People's perceptions there are still very much that, that somehow this belongs to us. What are these foreigners doing in here? They're only here because we want them here. Why aren't they paying us properly for, these, for access to these resources? There's a lot of very understandable suspicion that rip-offs are going on all over the place, and there are rip-offs going on all over the place. The logging industry is the prime example. There are over 80 logging companies in Solomon Islands busily removing what remains of the natural forest, and not one of them pays any business tax. Now, the, <laughs> the retiring or departing Commissioner of Income Tax said this to us in a seminar organised in Honiara a year ago, and it, it accords with everybody's perceptions. The country's economy grows by 10.7%, and we're told that this is because of the splendid performance of the logging industry, for goodness sake. Next, look at population size, where it is, its ethnic makeup, its ethnic composition, because it's very important in how people get on with each other, how, how much they accept internal migration. We had a very difficult and, and bitter and divisive period 10, 12 years ago, uh, known as the tensions, 
lovely word, sort of derived from the Northern Ireland uh, euphemisms. Anyway, we have the tensions, particularly on Guadalcanal. The causes of those tensions are still there. The, the, the trends, the population movements, the suspicions, the jealousies, the ethnic sensitivities that cause that are still there. They haven't gone away. The first thing anybody asks in Solomon Islands about something else is where do they come from? Which island? Do we, what do we know about those people? Do we like them or do we don't like them? That hasn't changed. It's still there. So ethnicity and where they are. And the thing about this point three here, resources, is that we actually don't know. We were supposed to have on our 10 yearly census cycle a 2009 census. It didn't happen. Administrative incompetence. Bungle. There are four households in my family. We all received the forms for the census, filled them in, and nobody ever came and picked them up. So there was no outcome from that census. The next census is going to be in 2019. Then we'll find out how many people there are, where they are, and we will see that the trends that caused the problems 10, 12 years ago have continued. And we'll see just what sort of a problem we've got. Okay. Five minutes. Right. Next, conditions that are conducive to economic activity. Uh, physical security. Now, I've just mentioned a, a period when there was a distinct breakdown in physical security. That's, on the face of it, has been largely fixed uh, by the uh, RAMSI, by the Regional Intervention. And in the field of, on the, on the surface, law and order, RAMSI has been pretty successful. It's been much less successful in other things it tried to do, but they were, those were the much more difficult things related to capacity building and changing the circumstances which had led to the breakdown in law and order. The rule of law is extremely important for economic growth. People who are going to invest in the family or in a firm need a sense of security. What they invest, what they develop will continue to belong to them. So the rule of law is extremely important to be able to protect person, property, and have recourse to the courts successfully. And the bankability of land ownership, the ability to use land that you've developed as security for further uh, investment. These are important conditions. They're partially fulfilled in Solomon Island. The accessibility and adaptability of financial services, there is progress being made there, uh, largely um, led by the central bank, greatly encouraged by outside uh, forces, UNDP, uh, IFC and others, helping the spread uh, the, the coverage and the adaptability of financial services. The commercial banks, initially reluctant, now finding that, well, they've really got to do it, uh, and, it and it's happening. Coverage and reliability of transport, that's improved a lot, uh, uh, particularly by sea. Inter-island transport is much improved uh, over 10, 15, 20 years ago. On land, it's varied. Uh, we spend a lot of money, usually uh, donor money <coughs> on roads and so on. Roads and bridges in Makira, big project, a lot of, lot of stuff going on, lots of visits and so on and so forth. Heavy rains come, rivers change course, now we've got bridges on Makira with no river going underneath them. The river has actually gone somewhere else and it doesn't have a bridge. Utilities, uh, yes, there's important reforms going on uh, in the uh, provision of utilities, water and power and solar plants. That's good progress. And that's, uh, those are institutional organisational reforms that are having some effect. And telecoms, uh, particularly, of course, the, the mobile phone network, that's happening, transforming life and in all sorts of ways. I live in a rural part of the Western Solomons, and everybody's got a mobile phone, and it isn't only news on copper prices that travel by mobile phone, as you would probably know, it's also village gossip, and now it's instantaneous. 
And it used to take two weeks for some news to travel. Now it's on the mobile phone. He did what? Last night? You saw him? My God, we must do something about it. Yeah, well. <laughs> okay, so these are conditions conducive to economic activity. And they're all under domestic control. I think that's really what I'm getting at. It's what we do domestically with what we've got that makes a tremendous difference to what we're going to be able to do in terms of uh, economic growth. Next one, conditions, still going? One minute. One minute, okay. Technical and professional skill levels, very important, very little progress, frankly. We're now going to have a Solomon Islands National University, but at the moment it's difficult to see how it's going to differ from the College of Higher Education, on which it's being based, uh, which has not been coming up to scratch. Competence of urban administration, very poor. Those of you who know Honiara and have known it over some time will know how it's deteriorated. Services are down, roads are crowded. The, the coast, which was Honiara's great asset and the only town plan Honiara's ever had was reserved for public access, is now full of shambolic, some very expensive, but shambolic developments. And the streets are lined with small shops owned and occupied and owned by Chinese families who have arrived in large numbers in the last 10 or 15 years. Passports on sale at the Immigration Department. Scale, scale, resilience of the private sector. That's good. Um, people who are in the private sector, Solomon Islands, in the private sector, running businesses, learning, expanding <coughs> against many of these problems they are having to overcome. Okay, last bit. Government. The, the other determinant area, I think, I've labelled it government, but it's a quality of governance and service delivery in those areas where the government is responsible. The, the structure, openness, accountability of the government, a lot is to be desired. Government has become secretive and incompetent. And, and there's no pressure on the government really to do anything about this. Donors provide aid anyway, for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with the competence of the government. The capacity, honesty, and competence of political leaders, that's on display. And I don't know of anybody in Solomon Islands who would think that that was satisfactory. They're a mixed bag, of course. There are honest and competent political leaders, but most of the time they're not the ones calling the shots. The government in Solomon Islands is is able to perform on the international stage. We have international stage qualified performers in the government, but it's really driven behind the scenes by the same forces that brought about the, uh, the period of great disturbance and instability and damage 10 or 12 years ago. Technical and professional efficacy. I use efficacy meaning people know stuff and they're able to put it to work. But the senior public service is very shaky. There are some people in the senior public service who know stuff, but they're not in a position to make use of it. They don't get along with the politicians, or the politicians don't want to know this stuff. The politicians want to do what they politically have decided is a good thing to do. And quality and accessibility of government services, public opinion generally would say they're poor. They're poor, and they are very open to uh, requesting speed money to uh, make sure your application gets higher up the pile or whatever it is. The government land has been sold quite openly by officials in the lands department for years now, and it continues. So I, it's a mixed bag. The point of my presentation, really, is that I haven't been talking about GDP, I haven't been talking about international prices, I haven't been talking about any of those things. I've been talking about domestic conditions, and I think that that's what really is under local control, it's what we should be paying attention to, and then we will find that we've got the resilience Given we're talking about Solomon Islands in Melanesia, a favourable overall balance of land to people, we will have the resilience to deal with 
varying international conditions. Tony, for that different uh, perspective. Uh, let's, let's go on to Fiji. Uh, Biman Prasad, again, needs no introduction. We have a stellar cast. And Biman is currently Dean of the Faculty of Business. You're not the Dean. Not the Dean, actually. <laughs> Formerly the Dean, now Professor of Economics at the Faculty of Business Economics, University of South Pacific. Okay, uh, thank you, Stephen, and uh, it's good to be uh, uh, here with, with all of you. Uh, it's... it's um, it's difficult to um, talk about the Fijian economy these days. Uh, even when you use uh, uh, government data uh, and say exactly uh, what is the story, and if the story is not very good, uh, the government thinks that economists have gone mad. You know? uh, I think the, the economic story um, uh, of Fiji um, in the last three decades uh, is pretty disappointing. And, and uh, it, it's more disappointing and, and particularly depressing what has happened in the last uh, five or six years. Uh, the average uh, growth between 2007 and 2011, as you can see, uh, is just 0.16%. Uh, uh, and I see uh, Christopher uh, as a forecast for 2013, uh, just 1.7%, and perhaps you know that's a more realistic uh, forecast. The government's forecast for 2013 uh, is actually 2.7%, and, and uh, I think it's rather too optimistic. But as you will see later on, uh, when, I, when, I, when I talk about uh, the investment levels, but before that, if you look at the sectoral contribution of, of GDP, uh, and here I think the story is that the real sector has not done well, particularly the agricultural sector, and, and, and the economy uh, ha has been riding on basically on tourism and remittances. Uh, the, in, in terms of foreign exchange earnings, tourism uh, is now number one, second uh, comes remittances, third is fish, Sugar is down to the fourth, and, and that, I think, shows the contribution of the real sector to the GDP. The other point I want to make, uh, a, a much more general point, is somewhat of a reversal of policy in Fiji. Uh, in fact, if you look at what the government has tried to do in the last five or six years, it's, they've actually moved away from a focus on, on really export-oriented strategy, trying to more an import substitution strategy. And in fact, uh, a lot of the input subsidies for things like growing potato, you know, when we can import potato quite cheaply at half the price of what you might sell, you know, if you produce it in Fiji from Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the other recent example of, of that kind of reversal of policy and looking at input subsidies is the dairy industry. The import duty uh, on all dairy products was increased from 15% to 32%. And basically, uh, uh, one com particular company was given a monopoly. And this company is going to make millions of dollars uh, out of the, the um, high prices that consumers will have to pay. Um, this is the government story about the uh, investment. And, and here, uh, basically, if you look at what the government is saying, that uh, they're predicting an uh, investment rate of about 20 
5% of GDP, uh, which would then uh, bring us back to the growth forecast of 2.7%. In fact, you know, if, if it is 25% of GDP, then you should be looking at a growth rate of about 4 to 5% uh, in, in uh, 2013. 7% um, uh, is coming from statutory government companies, uh, according to the government. Uh, they claim that uh, in 2013, um, uh, the private sector invest investment would be around 13%, uh, and 5% uh, from government, which probably includes <coughs> the 1.1 billion for the three new aircrafts that we we have uh, purchased. Uh, but uh, again, you know, going back to ADB forecast, and I've had discussion with ADB staff uh, in Fiji. Uh, in 2010, the private sector investment was 3%. In 2011, it was between uh, 2 to 3%. And, and so I, uh, I, I don't believe the, the investment figures. Uh, one thing, though, uh, that is happening, uh, and I've looked at, if I had time, I would have actually shown you the slide on the, the number of foreign uh, investment proposals that, that have been registered in Fiji. Uh, in the last uh, two, three years, uh, uh, in fact, in 2012, Australia was the, um, was the number one uh, source of uh, foreign investment proposals uh, that were registered. In 2013, um, I think the figures so far show that China has overtaken Australia, uh, and then we have New Zealand, um, USA, and then India. So in, in some sense, uh, there, there is a lot of interest in Fiji. Uh, there is a lot of uh, proposal. Uh, but the government, in fact, the data from the Fiji Trade and Investment Bureau uh, is not very clear. In fact, it's quite confused. Uh, you cannot really make out you know, what's being registered, what's being established, and, and the value of those investments uh, that, that have been. Uh, uh, so it, it's not easy to. to uh, lay your finger on the, the exact situation uh, <coughs> with respect to um, the uh, rate of investment in Fiji. Uh, you know, we have a paradox in Fiji. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, reduction in poverty globally, in many countries in the last two or three decades, poverty has been reduced. Uh, Fiji is one country, at least uh, in, in the Pacific, uh, where the poverty rate um, has increased fivefold uh, from the 1970s. It was somewhere around uh, 7 to 8% in the 1970s. Um, but the story is e even more uh, depressing uh, based on uh, more recent analysis uh, of data, which is with the government, and the government has not released some of those uh, analyses uh, on poverty, uh, on uh, employment, and, and I think that uh, is a real uh, depressing story which uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about as well. So really if you look at the, the, the uh, formal sector, uh, employment has not grown uh, in the last six years. And in fact, you know, it's gone backwards uh, somewhat. Uh, and more uh, young people have been joining the workforce as well. Uh, employment creation uh, mostly has been in the informal sector. Uh, and these are really low-paid, uh, low-wage uh, employment uh, with, with, with low hours and days of work. Uh, some estimates show that about 20,000 women have left 
being full-time housewives to try and make ends meet with the house. Some people say it's a good thing that women are entering the labor force. But they're actually forced to work because uh, they cannot uh, do with, with one income. Uh, underemployment um, has grown quite significantly, and uh, estimates show that it's about 33% of the labor force. And uh, the 15 to 19 age group is particularly um, underemployed, and uh, they are somewhat idle 60% of their working time. Uh, and hence, you know, we can see increase in the crime rate. But let me just show you this, this data. This is data from the National Employment Center. This is not my data, this is government data. In between 2010 and 2012, uh, close to about 26,000 uh, people registered with the National Employment Center. And of those, you can see only 1,404 people got full-time employment. And the bulk of these people who have registered uh, are uh, basically between the age of 19 and 34. So the analysis that has been done more independently actually corroborates with what uh, government has collected in terms of this particular data. Other issues. Uh, I think nominal incomes have not risen much in the last six years and, and uh, the estimate is the real incomes of everyone, nearly everyone, has fallen by about 30%. And, and even more depressing would be to look at, you know, that basket of, that the poor actually have. And, and, and some estimates are that if you look at that basket and look at the income that those households would have, their real income would have declined by close to about 50%. Uh, and and uh, this is particularly true for many in the rural areas. The incidence of poverty, um, uh, again, as almost uh, reaching 45%, some estimates have been put to 50%, you know, compared to 31% uh, in 2008, 2009. Positive areas, remittances uh, and tourism. Uh, but I think remittances in Fiji is, is still very, very important. Uh, and, and, and that is what is keeping the economy afloat together with tourism. Public debt, uh, two billion in 2006. Estimates now, uh, it to about 5 billion. Uh, if you add the contingent liabilities, um, and, and some of them are serious contingent liabilities, uh, not likely to remain uh, contingent, but you know, it could be added to the debt. Uh, so it is a serious uh, problem as well. Uh, foreign debt, uh, we always had very low foreign debt in Fiji. In fact, most of our debt was domestic. But that has tripled uh, unnecessarily. Uh, and, and um, a friend from the IMF once made this very public, uh, that instead of borrowing at 2%, uh, the Fiji government went and borrowed at 9% to pay the bullet bond um, uh, debt that, that uh, was there. So I think the, the story uh, in Fiji is, is particularly depressing, and Christopher made references to the, um, the um, elections. Uh, I think there are uh, several issues going forward uh, that, that needs to be looked at. Uh, I think the domestic conditions that uh, Tony talked about for the Solomon Islands, in Fiji it's really about what's happening domestically. The business environment, the World Bank uh, survey of doing business ranking has gone down. Uh, many of the decrees that have been put forward uh, by the government 
have led to increase in transaction costs. The price controls um, uh, that have been used quite extensively are all adding to the domestic economic environment, which is not conducive for very good investment. Uh, on social indicators, uh, there's a lot of publicity about what government is doing in terms of providing social protection policies. But if you actually look at that, uh, you know, for example, they've got uh, this $30 allowance per month. Uh, you know, for people who are over 70 years, you know, it comes to $1 a day. Uh, and, and if you look at what the government is giving in terms of uh, social protection policies and, and, uh, and compare what it has taken away from the people in terms of loss of employment, loss of income, uh, it's peanuts. Uh, political participation, um, I recently um, uh, called for uh, the fact that it is not too late for the government to um, uh, constitute a constituent assembly, uh, even to debate their own draft constitution, because I think the future of <coughs> Fiji, even after the election, uh, uh, depends on how transparent, how accountable uh, the current constitutional process is going to be. Uh, despite the fact that the government uh, trashed the High Commission report, put its own draft, undertook its own consultation, it is still not too late for the Vainimarama government to call a constituent assembly, take the draft constitution <coughs> process, and ensure that there is free and fair elections, because I think that itself could set a very good foundation for future growth. And if that doesn't happen, uh, then, and even with the, with the elections in 2014, I think we should look at another five or six or at least 10 years before we can get back and sort out the mess that we've created in the last five or six years. Thank you. Thank you, Piemont, for that uh, rather sombre presentation. Uh, Helder Lopez, now we go to Timor Leste. Uh, Helder has a um, very distinguished international uh, background, but is uh, currently resident economic political advisor at uh, the Ministry of Finance in Timor. So, Helder, over to you. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, I'm going to talk about economy of Timor Leste, and now I will touch upon a little bit on the strategic development plan of Timor Leste and the recent economic development and what are the key <coughs> challenges and way forward. So, um, in 2011, the government launched uh, its strategic development plan for the next 20 years. So, the vision is that by 2013. Uh, Timor Leste would like to graduate from LDC to be an upper middle income country. And uh, you can see, you know, I divided uh, the strategic development plan implementation in three different stages. So in the first and, and in, the, in the short and medium term development plan, now, the government would like to focus on the human resource, uh, human capital development and infrastructure development. And at the last decade of the, of the SDP implementation, We'll focus on the diversification of the economy uh, and eradicate uh, extreme poverty. So to, to achieve the uh, uh, SDP objective or a strategic development objective, uh, uh, we have identified that you know, we, need to, we need to develop our potential and endowment sectors, which is agriculture, tourism, and petroleum industry. So far, we have developed our 
tourism industry, but only upstream. So the tourism in the oh sorry, petroleum industry, but only upstream. So the petroleum industry that we would like to develop is also downstream. And tourism, as, as uh, similar to uh, other Pacific states, you know, we also have some potential uh, tourism uh, uh, destination area. So we would like to we would like to develop tourism as well. And for agriculture, you know, uh, this is a potential sector because most people rely on this sector. But we realize that you know to to diversify the economy by developing three uh, these three potential sectors. Uh, we can do that without having a proper, appropriate, and uh, adequate infrastructure and human capital. So that is why the focus, as I said uh, in, in the previous slide, that the focus right now is on the human capital and infrastructure development. They are key sectors that we, uh, we need to develop in order to diversify our, our economy. And these are some major uh, economy policies that being taken by the government through its fiscal policy. Uh, as mentioned by Christopher, that you know, we use dollars, so we don't really have a monetary policy. So we use our fiscal policy to, to, to solve or to, to solve most uh, some of our economic challenges. And uh, the first uh, major economic policy that I would like to share with you is uh, front-loading policy. So, so uh, in our fiscal framework, you know, uh, most uh, most of our revenue is currently coming from uh, oil revenue, and the oil, uh, the revenue from the oil goes directly to our sovereign wealth fund, which is we call petroleum fund. And every year, the government, by law, the government is only allowed to take three percent of of the petroleum wealth for its uh, uh, state budget. Uh, but this front-loading policy uh, explained that because we have infrastructure problem, we have human development or human capital level or human capital problem, that is why the government justified to the parliament that, okay, instead of just taking 3% from, we drew 3% from our petroleum, okay, let's do a front-loading policy by taking more than 3%, uh, investing in uh, infrastructure, investing in, in human capital, mm -hmm. and then after that, we go back to 3%. The idea of 3% is, if you only take 3%, we call the 3% is estimated sustainable income. If you only 3% from your petroleum fund, then your fund will not be depleted. So you have money to spend uh, 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 now and also in the future. Uh, another another uh, uh, major economic policy that, that uh, we have been uh, taking is uh, transparency in our in our petroleum fund management and also public financial management. Uh, uh, if you if you read some international reports, you know our petroleum fund management is highly rated. Uh, we I think we are one of uh, I think we are the first one in 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 you know according to e, uh, e, EITA. You know we are the first one in Asia in terms of the petroleum fund management and also the third in the world. Uh, and also uh, through our through our fiscal policy, we do provide some stimulus for the for the uh, small and medium price uh, medium enterprise development via uh, what we call uh, village and district development fund. And also there are some other uh, major economic policies there. Okay, uh, this this slides uh, uh, shows us you know the this one shows. Uh, 
our, our projection for our petroleum revenue uh, in the next uh, decade. So our, uh, with the current uh, oil field that we have, if we only get uh, in our way, not considering, let's say, greater sunrise and, and, and other oil field, then our petroleum revenue will, will down, or in our will, will be finished in uh, 2025. So, uh, uh, so that is why we do have this uh, fiscal rule called ESI, which is we only take 3% so that we have money to spend now and in the future. But also on the other side, you know, we saw our domestic revenue also increasing, although it is uh, very small. Um, and that, that graph shows uh, how much our petroleum fund now, <coughs> how much we spend for our state budget uh, in 2013. So basically we have this, this amount of money in our petroleum fund, but we only spend this one. Uh, it is because of, it is because of, uh, we understand that we have a poverty, we have unemployment, and etc. and etc. but we consider the, uh, the capacity of uh, our institution to spend money, uh, fiscal sustainability, quality of expenditure, and etc. and etc. that's why you know, we try to use our money wisely. Um, and the other, the other graph shows the domestic revenue and the expenditure and the gap between domestic revenue, or domestic <coughs> revenue and the expenditure is financed by petroleum revenue. And because, uh, because of we are heavily relying on the petroleum revenue, based on the uh, uh, World Bank, uh, World Bank uh, calculation, uh, Timor-Leste is the second, I think the second most oil dependency country in the world <coughs> after South Sudan. Uh, and these are the front-loading policy that I just explained. Now, the, is that the red? The pink is, uh, is the ESI, the 3% of uh, the 3% that we take from the petroleum, and, and, and the rest are domestic revenue. And you see, in, in starting from 2009, you already take, uh, we, 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 we apply the front loading policy. So we, we, we draw more than 3% from our petroleum revenue to finance our. Uh, state budget. Um, uh, another thing that I would like to say here is that our growth so far is mainly, you know, as Christopher uh, already said with us, that uh, you know, Timor-Leste is not experiencing high growth rate, double digit. But the double digit growth rate is mainly driven by private or public sector. You know, this is one of the this is one of the indicators. You know, the investment, investment in Timor-Leste is mainly driven by the private sector. But I think it, it probably makes sense because we are in the initial stage of the, of the development and the government needs to put, uh, 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 you know, create facilities to, 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 to attract private sector investment. And this graph shows Timor-Leste, you know, the red, the red, the red is about uh, government investment in gross fixed capital formation. We compare to other countries, and this one, you know, compared to other countries, you know, uh, the uh, investment from the public sector is very high. And 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 because of the because of the uh, uh, sectors that get high investment or sectors that get high investment from the public sector, the the growth is very very. Uh, uh, the growth rate is, is increasing. As you say, you know, because we put a lot of money in 
in infrastructure, the growth rate of infrastructure is, uh, is higher than, or higher compared to the others. And this, this one is the contribution of, the contribution of, of sectors to our GDP. As you can see, agriculture, uh, agriculture and public, public administration, you know, they contribute uh, a lot to, to our GDP. And uh, there are a lot of discussions uh, in our society that you know, having this type of economy may not be sustainable. So we need to think about how can we, uh, you know, we attract private sector investment so that you know, private sector take lead of the economy instead of public sector. Just one minute. Okay. Well, this, uh, these are the figures uh, of our economic uh, growth GDP or GDP growth, uh, GDP per capita that I would like to share with you. In, in counting our GDP, you know, we try to uh, uh, put, you know, we try to have GDP non-oil and GDP oil because of our oil revenue only affect to our economy once we get, we withdraw money from the petroleum fund and put in our state budget. So that is why we try to uh, calculate, uh, uh, differentiate them in order to, to have uh, uh, figures that really reflect to the economic development in our country. And uh, this is the comparison of, of our GDP with other countries. And these are the inflations. So inflations uh, is high, uh, we know that. And, and uh, there are external and internal factors. External factor is beyond our capacity. We try to fix it. And one of it is uh, uh, bottle supply bottleneck. Um, so we are, we are planning to have uh, to fix our roads, rehabilitate our roads, and, 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 and having a new seaport. Uh, uh, but doing business uh, uh, from Volberg in our source, that Timor Leste is, is very, very bad in doing business, and we understand that we try to fix it. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, the key challenges, I think I have a lot of. Uh, Slides here, but the key challenges that we, I would like to I would like to say here, since I only have one minute, is that you know the growth is high, but seems to us like it is more uh, a, a, a quantitative growth rather than qualitative growth. Uh, so what what we are trying to do is try to do try to have a, maintain the momentum of high growth rate, but uh, make sure that it is inclusive growth instead of rather or instead of just. Uh, uh, growth. And the second thing is, you know, the private sector involvement in our economy is still very low. Most of the local domestic private sector, they just rely on government projects. So we will, like, you know, what we are, you know, the way forward is that, you know, we try to fix our business environment in order to, to, to allow private sector to, 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 to do investment. And, and I think one of the policies that we just have in few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, is establishing a one-stop shop, uh, 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 and and uh, we do also have a social uh, uh, safety net. We have a social assistance program, and we would like to keep this one. And uh, now we continue evaluate this one and try to try to control it and more on uh, target to pro rather than just providing social assistance programs. Uh, and uh, another thing is, you know, we try to uh, curtail inflation and, and make it, uh, 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 bring it down so the private sector, so the cost of the, cost of the business in Timor-Leste 
can be uh, done and attract private uh, private sector. I think I stopped here because they because of the time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Governor. I know all these presentations go for a lot longer. I'm sorry we don't have more time. Uh, last presentation, last but by no means least, Otto Tebi, who was uh, 10 years the uh, government central bank in Manawatu and just stepped down this year as now an independent uh, consultant. Otto spoke, uh, like Biemann spoke last year. Happy to have you back again. As you all know, Vanuatu's economy is a, it's a very small economy. It's open and vulnerable to natural disasters, and it's dualistic. It's about 75% of the population live in the rural areas. In the 1980s, it was around 80% of the population living in the rural areas. But because of urbanization in the last census, uh, it has uh, now reduced by 75%. And as a result of that, uh, Urban poverty has increased as well. And uh, ADP has conducted study on that and has revealed that uh, urban poverty in the in Portilla in and Lugarvin has increased. Uh, just recently in the island of Business, I've uh, read uh, the recent uh, the article, and it's based on the World Bank uh, uh, expected losses for natural disasters in a year, the range of natural disasters. It's about 48 million US dollars. Natural disaster hit Vanuatu uh, uh, in given in one year. <coughs> now, the story from 2000, the economic growth story since 2004 economy is growing up until 2009. So, this is the, the growth story. So, we have seen 2004, we have around 6% uh, growth around that area. And then 2008, 2009, the economy has declined. There are quite a number of factors for that. One of them is the, uh, the completion of the uh, major projects, uh, especially the US-funded uh, Millennium Challenge Fund project that was completed. And secondly, tourism was down. Uh, 2009, 2010, tourism was really low. And, uh, and also the, the lacking effects of the global financial crisis now that we are the feeling uh, we, we felt that during 2008-2009. And 2012-2018, uh, we're expecting that growth will increase. Uh, this is mainly because of tourism. Uh, tourism is uh, starting to rise. Last year, uh, we record the highest number of tourists ever in our history. Uh, that was last year. And we're expecting that tourism will, will continue to grow. And uh, we're also expecting there will be a huge number of uh, public sector projects that will be uh, some already implemented, uh, some are now implemented, and the private sector projects will also be implemented during 2013 up to 2014. So the average growth around 2004, 2012, is around 4.4%. And uh, I think I've 
I've discussed those. Uh, I think the challenge is uh, what do we do around 2014, 15 when the projects are over? What are we going to do? So I think the main challenge will be the structural <coughs> reforms. For example, looking at the land, the infrastructure again, the cost of doing uh, business is still high. I mean, when we need to work on that. Our ports, the cost. So our ports, the costs are very high, so we need to do reforms on that as well. Now, MSG means a Malaysian Spare Group, so uh, our Vanuatu's growth in, in relation to other Malaysian countries, so you see, I mean, ATP has already mentioned that, uh, Solomon and PNG very high due to the natural resource boom, and you see uh, Fiji and Vanuatu uh, just around uh, two two percent around that uh, range. And uh, if it is an inflation story, it's a good story. But this is a good growth story, so we need more. Uh, so, as I mentioned, so around the Melanesian region, around 2006, 2012, growth was around 9.2 percent PNG, Solomon 7.3. 4.2 and Fiji 1.3 percent. Uh, like I've said, PNG Solomon dominated mainly by the by the natural resources. Now, the macroeconomic fundamentals are strong. Uh, reserves over six months of import cover. Uh, inflation is low, 6.8 percent, and it's a good record over time. Uh, fiscal position is fine, but I mean deficits still continue with them, and we need to monitor that very carefully. Uh, public debt to GDP ratio is 0.2 percent, so it's still uh, at a good uh, level. So domestic is around 7.7, and external is 13.9 percent. And uh, <coughs> uh, soundness indicators are strong. Uh, just for information, the IMF has just released released the uh, their article commission report, so it's now on the on the website. Some of these uh, data are taken from the latest uh, publication. So this is the inflation story. So Vanuatu is uh, relatively uh, the story is uh, so far is so so good for the I mean the inflation story is good. Now, how does it impact the human beings? We talk about the numbers and the so the <coughs> according to the United Nations Development Human Development Indicators, our uh, HDI value is around 0.26 percent and. That is an increase from uh, 0.6 to 3%. So we are categorized under the medium human uh, category. So we are around 124 out of 157 countries. There is more work to be done on that. So that's the story about the Human Development Index, life expectancy, expected years of schooling, uh, mean years of schooling. And that's for the 2012 numbers. So if you compare the one or two and the other Pacific uh, Islands and the East Asia and the Pacific, Vanuatu uh, still has a lot of work to do on this uh, improving uh, human development indicators. Some challenges ahead. We have strong macroeconomic uh, and prudential powers, but we still have challenges. Like I said, we have uh, <coughs> uh, 
we are vulnerable to natural disasters, we are, but we have our own disasters, like we have our political fragmentation, it's a big problem. <laughs> we have, uh, <coughs> we almost have earthquakes uh, every year. Uh, so we have a fluid and fragile government, so governments change all the time. So it's not healthy for, for development. So that's one of our biggest challenges. I think I put down below is the keys, political reforms, because all these structural reforms, we are only trying to address the symptoms, but I think the main issue is leadership uh, that we need to address. So that has to be addressed from within, and that is a big challenge. We could diversify tourism, we have a concentration witness, accountability and governance, state-owned enterprise, civil service, we need to address uh, issues in these areas, uh, so weak accountability <coughs> in these areas. Social and physical infrastructures, I mentioned that, the human resource. And the key is how to improve and sustain economic growth in the future. That would be a major challenge for us. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Otto. We do uh, have a few minutes for questions after those, all those great presentations. I'm sure there lots of questions. So if I could ask the five um, panelists, and Krista, if you want, to come up front. Um, and uh, meanwhile, if you can gather your thoughts, and uh, I know Peter wanted to ask a question last time. If you still got that question, yeah. if you want to get the ball rolling? Why don't you start? And, yeah, the third thing. Panelists can all come up. Who is missing? Tony? Yeah, come. Okay. Peter. Thanks. Uh, just quickly to Chris. Yes. Um, yes, Chris, you can also come up. I'll stand, I'll stand. focused on the performance of the real sector. The performance of the real sector. I wonder, because in Melanesia, most of the governments are investing on increased budget. <coughs> Obviously, an impact on the growth focus. Would you be able to share a little bit on what your expectations are in terms of that potential to, uh, that potential for increased government spending to impact on, on growth? this year and probably next year. Sure, I mean, in, in many ways, Helder is, is a much better speaker on this because so he's been trying to cover 14. I'm, I'm a, I, I know a little bit about a lot, uh, but expert in nothing. But um, my impression, as Helder pointed out, I, I'm sorry, I missed some points, but yeah. The, the GDP figures I was talking about were non-petroleum rep uh, GDP. As Helder really knows pointed out that that is basically private sector driven. I mean, not private, public sector driven, sorry. Um, and, you know, that's been going along very well, but, uh, and you, you, you see the double digit growth, but I really think the government is coming up against uh, pretty significant capacity constraints as it has ratcheted up its public expenditures so rapidly. You know, we, we, we've had annual public expenditure increases of upwards of 30% per annum over the last five years. And it's just really hard for a government facing the human resource challenges that Timor has 
to, to increase its delivery of services, its ability to implement projects that quickly. So I actually think the government has probably really sort of reached a, a limit on how much it can keep upscaling its, its public uh, expenditures as an as a engine for growth. No, sorry, I wasn't talking about this demo. Oh. I was just making a point that you raised this particular yes. impact of government expenditure on growth performance. I was more talking about the Melanesian countries. All of them are actually running very high budgets. Correct. They're investing in very high government expenditures. Naturally, that would have some impact on your growth forecast, wouldn't it? Sure, it does. Um, again, but again, they face similar issues of uh, government capacity and, and the, the effectiveness of public expenditure. I think, uh, from what I know of the PNG economy, it's a very serious concern. There's also a lot of the ways the governments are allocating those funds are probably less than, than optimal in terms of constituency funds or giving members of parliament control over those things with very little public oversight. Um, so um, again, it, it's, it's as much about the, the amount of resources you're pumping through the public expenditure system as, as the efficiency with which those resources are used. Okay, other questions? I think if you haven't had a chance yet to ask, otherwise, yeah, please, just introduce yourselves. Uh, Wesley, Wesley Morgan, PhD candidate at Melbourne University. Uh, I had a couple of questions, but one was for Christopher again, and it was uh, just at the end of your presentation, you talked about a trade cost indicator for yes. the Pacific Island State, your company, other indicators. I was just wondering if you could elaborate very briefly on uh, what, 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 what that indicator would attempt to measure? And, uh... Uh, so so it's, an, it, it's an easy to uh, calculate indicator. So we're just searching for any, anything to sort of gauge it. Um, so it was a very preliminary effort. It's based on the difference between the, the insur uninsured and insured costs of imports from the Pacific to selected market destinations. And what we see is when you aggregate, uh, when you talk total trade, it's extremely volatile because it must be um, uh, variance in, in the composition of trade is really driving too much change in, in the indicator. But it seems promising and we're gonna keep working with this. Um, my colleague later in the afternoon will probably have a chance to talk about that a bit more when we, she talks about some of the research we're planning in, in the area of uh, sort of trying to play out the economic linkages and how they are evolving across the Pacific economies. But it, it's a fairly established uh, I'm trying to remember the citation. The flu doesn't help my mind very much, though. Um, but it, it's in the paper. Um, so it's just applying that and, and, and using it um, for it. But I would say the results we presented are, are probably too volatile to be too too useful. But again, the idea is you use as many many different indicators as you can, and you get different takes on things. And the advantage of this one, again, is, is, is the ease, ease of computation and, and rapidly how rapid you can, can get that indicator. And we'll come back to it in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my question. No, no, we're behind you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in the food security across the region. Um, and I noticed that I think somebody said, I can't remember who it was, inferred really that input substitution in the food area is inefficient, that it could be, um, food can be um, produced much more cheaply and imported into some of the countries. And I'm just wondering how you align the food security with 
I think that's a very good question. I, I wasn't actually uh, referring to uh, the idea that we should not uh, look at food security as a as an issue, as a challenge uh, for Fiji and indeed for many other Pacific Island countries. What I was saying was that what's happening in Fiji right now is uh, is a lot of uh, the strategy for uh, rejuvenating the agriculture sector is based on really import substitution strategy where it involves a lot of input subsidies. Uh, I think there are other ways, you know, for example, uh, in Fiji, the research and extension uh, aspect of agriculture has been totally devastated in the past, and and government would do better to actually uh, look at uh, investing in uh, appropriate agricultural infrastructure, uh, strengthen uh, research and training, uh, look at new technology, and and so uh, that approach might might be able to produce you know better outcomes you know better productivity uh, and and enhance uh, both you know food security and agriculture's linkage to the tourism industry as well as uh, to produce uh, enough output for export and i think there is quite a bit of potential at least in fiji uh, for agricultural exports to australia and new zealand so i, I wasn't kind of saying that food security is not an important issue. It is absolutely important. Thank you. Yeah, please. Thank you, uh, Chuck. Uh, I'll just make some general comments, mm. uh, more related to Anthony's uh, presentation and uh, his team. Uh, I think we we'll take more to Anthony's presentation, uh, <coughs> from academia to uh, what I call real life. Uh, <laughs> One of the uh, recently attended a conference at the OECD in Paris, and the theme was competition and uh, poverty alleviation. Uh, the reason why I relate more to uh, Andrew's uh, presentation is I think we need to address, look at our internal issues. Such uh, presentation on targeting uh, poverty, uh, understanding poverty more, and you know, uh, uh, so that. Uh, Assistance to uh, uh, to poor can be more targeted. I think there are other ways to address, address the problem, and, and that will be my focus of my presentation tomorrow. Uh, as you know, we we, we regulate uh, uh, state-owned enterprises, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, one of the things that has really concerned me is the increases in port charges, power charges, water rates. We we Papua is one of the very high utility rates in the world. And there's no end inside it. They continue to rise every year. And you know, 70, more than 70% of the things that we consume are imported. They come to our ports, uh, utility costs feeding to this, and at the end of the day, it's the poor that uh, suffers. Uh, so one of the things I'll be focusing on is uh, addressing the uh, cost of utilities in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and I quite admire what uh, Eastino is doing, and I think there's potential for Eastino to be looked at as a role model for the Pacific countries. Uh, it's very good uh, governance structure surrounding their sovereign wealth funds. I don't know how far we want to the setting up of our sovereign wealth fund, but I think we should not look too far from uh, Eastino's experience. But I thought that I'd, uh, I'd like some comments from uh, Anthony, uh, because for me, uh, one of the questions that was asked well, by a minister uh, was what do you think about the economy? And I said, our economy is very sick. 